strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. Varun, my friend, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm super excited uh, for today's guest because he has been the front runner of the four-day work week. I've been mm-hmm. doing it for so long and I would love to, you know, know more about it. So I'll let you. You're stealing some of his thunder. I'll say that right now. All right. Let me introduce our guest today is a creative entrepreneur um, and sustainability advocate. He is a driver behind a social impact creative agency with creative experience and expertise. He founded Cosmic in 2012, which has become a leading agency in the sustainability space, working with clients to develop impactful branding and marketing strategies that promote sustainability and drive positive change. Please welcome today's guests, who we're going to start talking about something different, um, founder and creative director at Cosmic, Eric Ressler. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. I'm excited. Uh, we're excited. All right, so let's dive in. Um, since Varun saw a little bit of your thunder, what is the uh, bogus strategy, misconception, myth that you'd like to set the record straight on? So in the agency world, there is this culture and myth of overwork and working long hours and really essentially giving up your life for the agency world in a lot of ways. And I think that that is shifting. It's something that we've essentially opted out of from the very beginning. And we do that in a number of different ways. Um, The most concrete defiant example is that we work a four day work week and we can kind of talk more about that. We've been doing that since uh, 2011. And it's starting to gain a lot of popularity, even in the last year with a lot of like um, trials in various countries and organizations, which is really cool, showing some good outcomes and benefits to it, which we've seen as well. But I think this kind of this grind or hustle culture that's pretty prevalent in the agency world and has been for a long time, especially like the big ad world, um, but also in startup culture as well. And we've experienced it from from both sides, being an agency ourselves and working with a lot of startups in the early days. and. I think one of the things that we think about um, as a creative agency is that creativity is something that you can't brute force. You can do that for a certain amount of time. You can grind, you can hustle, you can push really hard, but you also need time to rest, rejuvenate, reflect, live real life where you actually get inspiration from. You actually don't get inspiration and grow by just pushing yourself as hard as you can. You need If you're doing that and seeing outcomes, it's because you've lived life and you've seen experiences and you've had life experiences that give you the fuel that you need to produce creative work. So what we've been experimenting with in various ways is how can we optimize for creative output and a more sustainable approach to running an agency? It doesn't sound like you are experimenting since you've been doing it for so long. I mean, you are like a mature... (laughs) Uh, model already. I mean, I would love to know what was the inspiration behind this? I mean, I'm sure there's so many, well, you said so many things and I have so many follow-ups, but I think mm-hmm. I want to start with the inspiration when you started it, why you started it and 
course, the benefit that you have seen for yourself. There are benefits that you know we have heard from other countries, but for you, for your team, what was the result? The spark of it was selfish. I didn't want to work five days a week. And I started <laughs> I to think about- love the honesty of that. <laughs> and, and I think the, the what, where I go with this and, and in general, how I think about running a team and creating a culture is if I don't want to do it, my employees probably don't either. And so I started to look at some early research and case studies where there were some companies that were running four-day work weeks and talking about some of the benefits and specifically talking about the productivity um, is not necessarily going down if you're working less hours, that there is a certain amount of output and focus that as humans, we can produce each day and each week. And that working more hours does not necessarily lead to more productivity. And in fact, working slightly less hours, it turns out, is proving to be slightly more effective in terms of output and productivity, which is something that, you know, I think a lot of like traditional managers are really concerned about. Um, you know, you see this through four day work week, you see this through remote work versus working in the office um, and kind of all these like cultural divides around how work should happen coming in this kind of post pandemic era. And I think that the benefits are not just about productivity, but that's the one that like a lot of companies would not be willing to give up, for example, because productivity leads to profit. Um, but there's also so many benefits outside of productivity with the four day work week around overall, what I would kind of put in the sustainability bucket, a cultural sustainability of not burning people out of allowing people to stay healthier. There's less sick days on a four day work week. Um, allowing people to just have more time with their families and to do things outside of work, to take care of their chores on Friday and have a two full days outside of that to rest and rejuvenate. It's hard to cram stuff into two day weekends. Um, we spend so much of our time working and work is important, especially purposeful work. And I think that that's great. But if we're not able to actually bring our whole selves to that work, working more isn't helpful. It's more helpful to be able to come fully prepared, fully rested, fully creative each day and work four days than to come five days a week or six days a week or seven days a week and be functioning at 60%. That's just not helpful. So many follow-ups. Like Varun and I are like so many questions. I, I think this has been a, a topic this season with quite a few actually agency owners in terms of how to, how to manage through that grind culture. And some people don't, and you know, that's a choice they've made and they thrive on it. You know, it goes back to the culture of your agency and what you're producing and clients you attract. And it's so interesting. I don't know, Varun, if you feel the same way, it's so interesting having conversations with agency owners and how they run things and how so different, but everyone's equally successful, like no judgment with any of it. Um, I'd be curious to hear like people who are looking to get started with it. What, what are the nuggets? Like, what is it that you're like, Oh, this, we, this did not work. And he like, maybe one must do, you know, one pro and one con, let's just keep it simple there, you know, or like, and be specific. Like, I don't know. Did you have to get everybody on board within your team to be, you know, how do you manage your clients against it? Like, yeah, that was like eight different questions. Sorry. I can answer all of them. Um, Cause we've thought so deeply about this and experimented so much. So 
we did a lot of things wrong at first. Um, and I can hopefully help some people avoid some of those mistakes if they want to try this. So the first thing we did that was wrong is we tried to continue to work 40 hour weeks and work 10 hour days. And turns out that's not actually that helpful. Um, some people do that and prefer it um, over even a traditional five day, eight hour work week. What we found though, especially in the winter is that um, 10 hours is just a long day and it cuts into your daily rest and rejuvenation cycle in a way that's not helpful. So you might get a longer weekend, but you have no time during the week to do things like eat dinner with your family or go do something after work um, or be outside while there's still sunshine in the winter, right? So that's not all that helpful. Um, and it turns out the key is not necessarily the day, the number of days so much as it is the number of hours that you're working each week versus the number of hours that you're not working each week. And there's probably infinite number of ways you can kind of experiment with schedules there. Maybe you could do a five day, six hour work week. Um, you know, I think it really comes down to like how much of your time in hours per week are you dedicating to work versus dedicating to not work? Um, so the first mistake I would say is like, don't do a, a, a long number of hours. Keep the keep the hours short is, is part of it. Um, we also attempted at first um, out of kind of this fear, uh, especially at the time of clients not accepting a four-day work week and wanting us to be kind of on call every day, even though we don't really do work that requires that. I don't know why we were so worried about this in hindsight. <laughs> Um, but agency grind culture, you know, <laughs> right? we're I mean, used yeah, to it. <laughs> yep. Yep. So we tried to split the team so that there was always half the team in the office. So we had half the team work Monday through Thursday and half the team work Tuesday through Friday. Um, so there was coverage and that was not a good idea, um, because it didn't allow enough overlap between team members. And, uh, we became a little bit less cohesive as a team because of that. And it was hard to schedule meetings and, and all that kind of stuff. So the only benefit of that is that the days that there wasn't overlap, it was a little easier to get deep work done. And that's something we can kind of talk about more as well, um, which is something that I think is an important consideration. So those are some kind of early mistakes that we made, um, you know, trying to still work 40 hours a week, splitting the team across, um, you know, different work schedules. I, I personally would advise against that. Um, you know, obviously it depends on your agency and what you're doing, but we found those to be problematic and kind of pretty quickly moved away from those. So um, I want you um, just to set some context. I would like you to tell us about what type of work is that that you do? Because yes, creativity requires time and you need to, you, you need to have the clear mind and have the regeneration of the energy to, to bring that to the, to the work. But um, not. I, I wonder, that's where I would like to ask, like, does all the type of work fall in this category? Or is it certain type of job that can, that requires, or that should, that, that will succeed in this model? Uh, yeah, I think it's a good question. I, I don't think a four day work week necessarily will work for every organization. I think it'll work for 90 plus percent of agencies, but maybe there's some niche edge cases where there's some reason why an agency must be in the office five or six or seven days a week. Maybe in the case of like crisis management and reputation management and PR, where they have to be totally on it at all times. 
maybe then they can still do four day weeks and split the time between team members. I will say that even that is better than a traditional work schedule, in my opinion. Um, in terms of the kind of work that we do, and I, I'd say a lot of similar organizations doing similar work could probably adopt a four day work week and, and be fine and, and even see a lot of benefits like we have. But we do essentially brand strategy, um, brand building for clients. So, you know, building identity systems, um, logos, type, color, messaging, kind of that core foundational branding work. Uh, we build a lot of websites, digital experiences, apps, those kind of things. We help clients launch campaigns. Um, so it is very creative. Um, it's a mix of strategy and implementation, which I think is, you know, fairly common as well. So there are deadlines, there are important deadlines, there are tight turnaround jobs, but none of that is a deal breaker for a four day week. Um, because it's really about for us, like how, again, like how can we ensure that each team member shows up at their best each day, because that's going to result in the best ideas, the clearest thinking, the best strategy, the best productivity, all things that are really important for creative work and creative output and like implementation work and implementation output as well. Um, so, you know, that's a, a very high level answer to what we do. Um, but hopefully that provides some clarity. Well, it answers the question of like, how do you manage from a deliverability standpoint, you know, yeah. outside of managing schedules and, you know, creative thought takes time and is hard to estimate, oh, I need three and a half hours to yeah. think through how to rewrite this copy. Yeah. Well, I need three and a half hours, a long walk, a good book and a shower, you know, because yeah. yeah. like, yeah. you know, where ideas crop up in, in any one of those places. Yeah. Is it, um, and there's like a, a huge, you know, I'm, I'm a super TikTok nerd. I'll say it. I watch a lot. I don't post, but there's a lot of these TikToks recently that have cropped up around like, various generations and how they perceive work. I won't sit here and quote them, but some of the younger generations are like, look, we're going to manage two boundaries that you're putting as an employer in place and the pushback that they're giving on what work looks like. So it's, there is a large movement around this, but it also, how do you guys, you know, manage like upcoming talent around this and setting expectations that work you know, how does that process work with your, your talent management within the agency piece of it? Yeah. So we haven't, this is a good segue into some of the challenges of the four day work week, I think, yeah. um, which we haven't really talked Sneaky, about. Sneaky, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there are challenges to the four day work week and you could say there are downsides even. Um, what I've noticed though, is that the downsides or challenges are all worth solving because they're challenges and downsides that if you solve them will improve your effectiveness as an organization anyway. So things like, I mean, there's just physically less time to schedule meetings. There's less hours in the work week to do that. So what does that mean? That means we need to be very intentional about what meetings we do have and what meetings we don't have and making sure that we're prepared for meetings, that they're effective, that we only invite people that are necessary. Um, it also means that there's less work time for deep work or heads down time, as we call it similar issue. How do we make sure that we schedule that for ourselves and for, you know, individual team members? Um, we still need to meet with clients. We still need to work and collaborate with clients. There's less time to do that. So this basically puts a lot of pressure on each of us individually and us as an organization to be extremely intentional with our time. 
I would argue that that is a very valuable skill, even if you're working a five day or six day or seven day work week or a 40 or 60 or 70 hour work week. Um, and I would even argue that if you were better of those things, you maybe wouldn't need to work those many hours to get the same amount of work done or to do the same quality or even better quality work. So those are some of the challenges. And when it comes to kind of um, team culture or talent acquisition, it's something we spend a lot of time on in interviewing new team members. And because people get very excited about the four-day work week, um, even though it's becoming more popular, it's still a pretty novel opportunity mm -hmm. to work somewhere and get paid, you know, a full salary. We 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 still just to be clear, like we don't pay people less because they're working less. It's you know we're still competing in the in the same market for talent. So we do spend a lot of time though in the interview process and in the onboarding process. I think largely kind of untraining bad habits for people who are traditionally coming from working much longer hours and even like getting through problems with this kind of more brute force approach of just putting more time in instead of being more intentional about how they're putting that time in. And I, I will say it might not work for everyone. Like we've had team members that has been a bigger challenge for and team members that it, it hasn't. I mean, we had some challenges when we were making the transition as a team. What I will say though, is that we were, it was an experiment in the early days and mm -hmm. we weren't sure we were going to continue it. We ran it as a trial. I think we set out to do six weeks on it. And it was really incredible to see how the team came together to work through and solve the problems because we all wanted it. We all wanted it to work. Um, and so it, it was extremely effective in that it really gelled the team around this kind of shared goal and shared purpose, um, which I think is a really helpful benefit as well. Um, but we do have to really talk to new potential employees about the implications and the trade-offs and the culture around a four-day work week because it is each week is very intentional and very um you know very intense frankly like to do it well you have to be really on it and so that works you know some people are cool with that and they see the value in it and they 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 value that trade-off and other people don't want that pressure and they would rather work a more uh, even a longer week if it didn't need to be as intentional and they'd rather have, you know, time for like water cooler chats and like, you know, hanging out and browsing Facebook an hour a day at work. Like that's cool. You know, everyone's got to find their way, but that's not going to work if you're trying to be really intentional. How we've asked a few other agency owners this too, and I'm curious to hear your answer specific tools that you use to manage this, you know, cause it, it's based off what, what we're hearing is, you know, with this intention, with, you know, there needs to be this buttoned upness internally that sometimes agencies can, some struggle with, some don't, you know, what are, what are the actual tools that you guys have found that have been useful for you, whether it be M systems, you know, all of these things, we're looking, name some names, my friend, if that's okay. Yeah. If you want apps, I can list all the apps. Um... <laughs> what's your digital tech stack that you're using? You know, what's, yeah. what are a couple of things that you have found, you know, Figma, everybody's using Figma to be able to manage sure. that's, you know, revolutionizing how we all do what we do. Yeah. You know, what are some of the other ones that you guys use internally that have been successful? Yeah. Well, we run sprints. I mean, I think we kind of have to start there with our clients and internally. So we have, okay. Agile. Um, that, you know, we're not a scrum shop strictly, um, but we do run sprints with clients, meaning we have, you know, an, an overall project schedule for each client. 
with, you know, key deliverables, key goals and success metrics, like standard things like that. But we break it into weekly sprints. We present in a sprint review each week to clients. We get feedback each week and we kind of work in sprint cycles. Um, we do that for our internal work as well. Anything that's not client work, but that we're still trying to do as a team. So that sprint cycle is kind of the, the overall cadence of how we do our work and how we organize our work. We manage, you know, uh, Asana is basically our source of truth for all tasks and planning and, you know, timelines and all that kind of stuff. So we, we use that, uh, we use discord as our kind of like Slack replacement. Um, okay. We used to use Slack. We've, I think we've gone through every iteration of like real-time chat at this point, starting with, was it called hip chat? Like back in the day, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. we were like early adopters of that. AOL um, Instant Messenger? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, okay. We'll go way back. Uh, but for work, yeah, I think we, we switched to Discord early on when we became a distributed team uh, mm -hmm. because we really liked the voice channel feature. And I don't know, Slack might have that at this point now. Um, but uh, this kind of what we found because we used to have a studio, we used to work all in the same space. And early on in the pandemic, we went distributed and kind of stayed distributed since then. But we uh, we found that it, we made the transition really well into a distributed team, probably largely because we already had some remote team members, even though our core team was working together. But the thing that we found the hardest to replicate in a distributed framework was that kind of like unscheduled, you know, off the cuff, like, Hey, let's just chat about this thing. Like, it feels weird to say like, Hey, I need to chat about this thing. Let me send you a zoom link. Um, it just feels like almost like too formal. Uh, and the thing that was cool about discord and that we still use like literally every day is just setting up voice channels where you can kind of see who's in there. You can hop in and out very frictionless, um, process. And so, oh. um, and I also think like, I'm personally a huge fan of voice as a way to meet instead of always being on video, there's something nice about being on video. We do our daily standups on video as a team so we get to kind of see each other. And then the rest of the day, we're pretty much in voice channels. The art of the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I mean, so it's not a source of truth. Discord is kind of where we have most of our discussion. That's like um, synchronous discussion. And then, you know, we use other various tools as well. I don't know how deep you want us to go on all this. No, but... that's good. I think. Yeah, Discord is one we've not talked about on this. So I know Varun's got a burning question. I can see it on his face. So you, you talked about um, spending less hours working doesn't mean that they are paid less, which is quite interesting. I mean, it, which makes sense, but also from the, how does that translate into pricing um, and you know uh, putting proposals for the clients? Because to them now, do you, I assume you follow more on the value-based pricing and not on, you know, how many hours are put into because hours do not matter from the client's perspective now. So how did, how do you manage that flow of the work? Yeah, we, we had already transitioned to more of a outcomes and values-based pricing model before the four-day work week. Um, I, I think that kind of started because the hourly, the hourly model has some issues with it. Um, and I can talk about those in brief if it would be helpful in my thinking on, on kind of pricing. But the hourly model from an agency standpoint is, is kind of higher risk unless you're willing to just be really brutal about charging, charging by the hour no matter how long it takes. We were never willing to do that. So for example, early on, if we would give a client an estimate and we would say, okay, our hourly rate is whatever. And we think it's going to take 10 hours. 
and it turns out halfway through we realize it's actually going to be we're not going to hit it like we would still just build a client for 10 hours um maybe this is like too altruistic of us or or even like just bad business practice right like but it felt unfair to the client they're like oh we estimated improperly what i'll say is that there's usually scope increases there's a shared responsibility for those right like there's some edge cases where clients just come and have a new idea. That's great. Those are pretty simple. But usually when there's scope disagreements, let's say, uh, or gray areas, the client possibly could have been more clear about those things. But we also probably should have asked some questions that would have revealed those earlier. So there's some shared responsibility around that. And so I think the problem with like an hourly uh, model is that, A, you're kind of capping out your potential revenue as an agency, because there's only so many hours in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year that you can bill for. You can only raise your hourly rates so high before they start to become like lawyer rates. And then people start to get weird um, in our experience because we have <laughs> some services that we do bill that way. And people are like, my lawyer costs less than this. What's happening? Um, so those are for like, you know, strategy work with like multiple team members in them, right? So I, I think we pretty quickly started to realize that like we really need to just be better about getting clear about what are you actually hoping to get from us like what are the not even deliverables i mean deliverables are part of it but like what's the outcome of the work that you're hoping for and what is that worth to you and i think that that's um a little bit more of a i guess you could call it like a project-based model we have to do some more work up front to scope things in a little bit more detail. So that's a trade-off there. If you don't, you can say, I think it's going to be 100 to 150 hours and here's our hourly rate and we'll figure it out as we go, you know? Or on the flip side, the exact opposite would be like, um, you know, agile, like weekly sprint rate pricing or like pricing by number of like dev points per week that some like agile shops will do. We've done that too. And, and we'll usually do that if the project goals are very unclear or if we want to adopt a more agile approach. So usually if we're doing things that start to bleed into essentially like product development or app development, we're trying to actually create a very detailed project roadmap and product requirements document, you know, maybe might not be the right way. The client might want more flexibility and not like have to sign up for a very set plan and then stick to it no matter what you learn along the way. So I think you have to kind of get creative with it, but to go back to your your original question, because we've kind of meandered all around at this point, uh, I, I think that we we had already essentially started been billing more in the kind of like outcomes and values based way, and you know we we've had very little issue with that approach. Like at the end of the day, clients want that anyway in our experience because they don't care how many hours it takes us to do it; they want to know what they're going to get and how much it's going to cost one way or another. You said a couple interesting things in there that I just want to comment on. You know, it's it's basically you're asking clients what does success look like to you, regardless of the actual you know outcome of the deliverable. And yeah. I don't. I think some agencies are really good at asking that. I think even internal teams, you know, when you're client side, asking, okay, you're asking me to do a thing. What is what is the success of that looks like to you in your opinion? Um, you know, shame on agencies who are not asking that because that way you're definitely not on the same page with, with clients. You also said something really interesting, you know, yeah, I know it was in jest, but, you know, paying for expertise, 
like from a lawyer perspective, when you're hiring a lawyer, they have got certain levels of education and credentials and there's cost in maintaining that and their brain and things like that. And I think we forget that as creatives and agency people, they're paying for expertise. That's why they're looking at outsource kind of these, these skills. And so, you know, pricing is a whole interesting animal in itself in terms of the value in that, the value of all the creative thought. And yeah, we could do a whole nother episode on that one. So I just I wanted to comment on those because I feel like they're they're pretty poignant. Um, but let's pivot because I want to talk about um, your niche and how you got there <laughs> because it's interesting. I don't think we've had somebody with as clear a focus as you. So um, sustainability, purpose driven. How did you how'd you get there? What's what's the tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, we describe our niche as the social impact sector, and it's a very intentional way of describing it. Um, in brief, if, if you're not familiar with the sector or, or you're just kind of vaguely familiar with it, there's so many terms like purpose-driven, et cetera, they're being kind of thrown out. Um, social impact sector to us is kind of comprised of a few key segments. So one would be nonprofit organizations, um, Another would be social enterprises or B Corps or, you know, legal entities that are businesses, but that exist to move humanity forward in one way or another, which is kind of the thread that ties all these people together. And the third would be more on the like funding side. So like foundations, philanthropists, um, you know, family offices, organizations that exist to do good. But the way they do that is they give other people who are actually doing the work money and invest in them. So they'd be kind of like the corollary to like venture capitalists in the startup space. Um, or, you know, impact investors, right, is another kind of like flavor of those. The, the thread that unites all of them for us is that the organization exists at its core to solve some kind of societal issue or to move it forward. It's not a CSR campaign for them. It's not a secondary benefit. It is why they were formed. It is their core focus and purpose as an organization. Uh, we don't really care how you file your taxes as long as that's true. So that's our sector. Uh, how we got there uh, well, we'd been an agency for about seven years, and we'd been doing a lot of work uh, with startups, B2B brands, B2C brands were near Silicon Valley and Santa Cruz at the time we were working out of an office. So naturally, our network kind of tapped into a lot of the startup work that's been happening and continues to happen in Silicon Valley and this like general central Northern California region. Um, and we realized that we were starting to kind of the way I think about it is like we were spinning in place. Like we were, we were okay. We were financially okay. We were, we were doing good work, but we weren't going anywhere really. Like I felt like we were starting to kind of cap out or lose momentum in terms of our growth. And I don't necessarily mean in terms of like number of people or revenue or any of those things. Um, although that was also true, but more just like what did we stand for as an agency and like how were we meaningfully different? than the 40 plus thousand other agencies in Northern America doing similar-ish work. Um, and, you know, we spent a lot of time helping our clients figure that out and we hadn't really done it for ourselves. And we used all the, you know, it's funny watching agencies try and position themselves and try and differentiate themselves when there is no meaningful difference and hearing them say things like, well, we're full service or we're results-based or like all these things. It's like, well, you know, who isn't those things, right? Um, and I think what we realized through, you know, some mentoring and coaching and, um, you know, learning is that it, it really came down to needing to tighten our positioning around, um, you know, there's different ways to do that, but to have a meaningfully different 
area of expertise that would differentiate us from other agencies where we could apply some of these fundamental skills to a particular subset of organizations and become more expert at doing that work than someone who can just kind of do that alongside other things. And we looked at our client base, we looked at work that we'd done, we looked at the market and ultimately kind of landed on social impact as the sector that made sense for us. So we chose um, essentially a, a vertical positioning, right? We chose a vertical, um, you know, the other option of course is to choose more of like a horizontal positioning, meaning that you do a very particular thing for anyone, but do that one thing like super well. So like email marketing, right? Someone could do email marketing and just like, that's all they do. They're like experts at that, but they'll do it for anybody. And, you know, they can apply that expertise to anyone. And then of course you could kind of combine both of those and do like only certain things only for a certain sector and be extremely specialized. So uh, we chose because we like to work holistically because we like to do branding work. We chose to really focus on a sector instead of say, we're only going to do just this one part. We've also just found that the types of clients that come to us need more of a holistic partner. They don't want to hire us just for one thing and then have to find other agencies to do other parts. There's still a little bit of that, but they want to be kind of like shepherded through the large transition, which is really what we do for clients. Um, so we, we decided to basically put a stake in the ground and take a giant leap and really go all in on it in terms of how we positioned Cosmic, uh, who we worked with, who we said yes to, who we said no to. And we can kind of talk a little bit about what that trajectory, uh, trajectory was like and, and what the transition was like, but that's, that's really what led us to make the decision. Yeah, no, I mean, this, this makes so much sense because you, you, you're right. I mean, it, it, it comes with so many benefits having niching down because now customers, I mean, customers would come to you because they want to work with you not because you are just another shop, right? So um, does that also mean though that, well, what I've heard and we have listened to this from other agencies, like the sales cycle reduces so much. You don't need the salespeople to that capacity to start selling, selling, selling. Now it's all inbound, or at least knowing you, people would want to work with you. So you said about transitioning, like how, so you were not always like that. You decided over time. And um, I would love to know about the transition. Like what were the challenges that, I mean, you shared some of the, the, uh, the reasons why you decided that way. But it was it hard? Was it like you know clear uh, cut story like this? No, this is exactly what we wanted to do. Oh yeah, it's the hardest thing we've ever done um, yeah. as an agency. So it's it's really hard. It's hard to have the courage to do it because it's scary because you're saying no, and that means you have less options. Like you're basically you're placing a bet, and you know you can do it intentionally, which is what we did. So we did research. Um, you know, we did uh, a lot of strategy and thinking around like, is this a viable market? Like, I think you have to look at that. And there's things you can think about, um, you know, or, or metrics you can even look at around, is this positioning viable? Like even just like how many people, how many potential customers are there in this space even? Is that enough? Is it too much? Is it too little? Right? Like some of those kind of things. But it is a, it's a courageous bet that you're placing to some degree, no matter how much research and planning you do for it. 
Um, the thing would it be that, like any company, you know, not to interrupt, but it would be like you were doing any sort of market sizing for any or market research yep. for any company that you were doing, even if you're doing for a client, doing it for yourself. Yep. Harder because it's personal. Harder because it's personal. Yeah. yeah. Harder because you have to live with the choices that you make, right? <laughs> also true. <laughs> so also, it's very easy to true. advise a client yeah. on something, even if you believe it's right, because sure, they, they have to go do it afterwards, <laughs> yeah. right? So when you're doing it for yourself, you're essentially your own client and you have to listen to your own advice. Um, True. So I, I think, yeah, it's the the challenges. There's a lot of challenges. So the first challenge is like making a choice around, you know, or even a series of options and kind of like whittling that down, which is what we did. Um, so that's challenge one. Challenge two is you have to essentially rebrand, right? To do that effectively, at least in your messaging um, and kind of how you, how you articulate your positioning as a firm. Um, and you need to do that clearly, which is hard, it turns out. Um, and then you have to, the, the hardest part is that when you first make that choice, you are only marketing differently. You don't actually have more expertise in that niche than any other given agency, because you're starting from scratch at some level. Now we had done a lot of work in the social impact space alongside our other clients. So we had some expertise there, but you're not actually more of an expert in that niche until you've done work in that niche for a certain amount of time and started to see patterns and started to really understand who's in that niche. What are their distinct needs and pain points and challenges and opportunities? Because essentially like building expertise only happens through doing enough work for enough similar people that you start to see patterns and you start to actually understand more about that space than any other agency doing work in general. I would say though, it depends. It depends on when you're making the niche decision, you know, starting out. Sure. That's probably true, but you know, having back to the earlier comment, you're paying for expertise, depending, you know, what lawyer you decide to bring into your firm, people have different kind of expertise there. You know, for example, I, I haven't done any work in like uh, biomedical, not an area of my expertise. I don't tend to take projects there. There's all kinds of rules and regulations. I'm like, I'm good. Cybersecurity. Yep. Sign me up. No problem. You know, it's, it's, so I think to your, to your point, but also not to your point, <laughs> It depends on how you've decided and when you've decided to make that decision. You know, you may have a, a social passion behind it. Let's say you love animals and pets and things like that. And you have some expertise there. And then all of a sudden you start getting clients in that way. So that it could grow out of that. So um, I think I totally agree. I think that's absolutely true. And, and <laughs> both I, ways. I, I think it's that you're at the beginning of that journey to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Similar to like, if you decide you're going to become a PhD in some discipline, you have some foundational yes. knowledge, but you're not a PhD until you're done. Right? So like, that's true, a more true. concrete example. But um, so I think the way that we thought about it and making that choice and the way that we actually acted is like, we have a lot of learning to do right now around this niche, because we have some foundational knowledge by doing some of this work and observing and talking to clients. But um, because we have not spent all of our effort on just this niche, we don't have like, for example, after doing it for as long as we have now, we know a lot of things about the space from a very, from various client experiences, working with clients that we didn't know when we first started. Yeah. What I'll also say is that it depends on the discipline side of things. So like the work that we're doing right now, there's like, I don't know, 70 to 80% of just like good 
foundational skills and best practices that are similar for branding a social impact organization versus branding a you know a b2c brand but there's that like 30 percent that's a little different um in terms of how you do it uh from a messaging standpoint especially like how do you sell a vision for a better future versus you know a, a dashboard for an enterprise corporation there's differences there right are there still some foundational elements around like messaging positioning branding design that translate of course but there is some distinction there that if you don't understand that distinction there's going to be some some stumbling blocks along the way you spoke about the learning that you need to you need to constantly keep doing like as a business owner as an agency owner as an entrepreneur i would love to know where where do you like you as a person get your learning from which communities you join where do you hang out where do you know and keep yourself up to date not about the industry of you know social impact businesses but like an agency life agency business um how do you keep yourself um on track and making sure you are not missing out on things that other owners must be doing yeah i mean it kind of the, it, i break it down into a few categories so like one would be like having a finger on the pulse of the industry right in terms of like where design is going where the creative industry is going and you know it's kind of i, I would say it's a mix of things right it's like newsletters i'm subscribed to it's my linkedin feed and who i follow there we have an inspiration channel in our discord that we all post you know case studies and we follow shops we follow like we follow people it used to be dribble um back in the day and it, it hasn't mm -hmm. been for a long time i don't mean anything against dribble i'm sure there's still really good stuff happening there but it's changed i feel like there's not as cohesive as like the, it used to be a little bit more centralized in my experience there were like a few key outlets like behance dribble uh you know a few key magazines that had become digital and now I think it's much more niche. I think this is kind of just true for media and content in general these days is there's smaller niche communities. You follow individual designers, you follow, um, you know, individual thought leaders more. So it's kind of a mix of like newsletters, following people on various social channels, you know, uh, social sharing of things like our team members stumbling upon something and sharing with us. So I'd say from a creativity side, that's kind of how it happens. And then from like a business operations side, I would say it's kind of a mix of like podcasts like this that are focused on, you know, agencies or consultants who help agencies, um, you know, business books, right? Like even at some level, some of this knowledge I've, I've kind of picked up. And usually what happens is I get to a point where I'm feeling frustrated about the trajectory of the business. And I go into this like deep learning mode where I just like binge books, podcasts, articles, looking for answers, looking for inspiration, looking for ideas. Um, those tend to happen more in kind of fits and starts. And then the creative inspiration happens consistently just out of a kind of curiosity for art design, what's happening out there. Like Varun and I are both nodding at that one in particular, because I think I know I definitely do it. <laughs> all the time i think this is super important i mean uh -huh. i i look at it this this way like yes there are times when you feel frustrated and this is either you know not going as per your expectations but that's the time when you need rest like 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 you said like you need that time 
But from the learning perspective, my thought is slightly different. I like to do the learning as a constant, like a daily habit of mine versus not going on a need basis. You know, you need learning every single day. So there has to be a slot for that. Um, so for me, there is a dedicated time of a day where I am either spending my time reading, listening or watching all about you know, information that I can take and can apply at any point, which makes my team drive nuts because now I'm coming up with all these ideas every day because I'm taking those ideas in. So that is a con. That is the consequence of doing all of that. Anyway, yeah. so, uh, but still it helps. It helps me stay excited all the time about the business in I am in and the industry in which we are, you know, uh, working in, so. Yeah, I would say the other thing has always been writing. Um, and this, we mostly write about how we solve client problems and like learnings kind of more in the work versus like the business operation side of things. Although we've written about that a little bit sometimes too. Like we've written about the four day work week before, we've written about sprints and like some of our process. But um, you really like writing isn't actually like just sharing your ideas, it's kind of where you actually turns out develop a lot of them because you think you understand something until you have to write it. And then you go to write it and you're like, oh, I actually don't know nearly as much about this as I thought I did. So actually the act of writing, I think is really important for uh, distilling, crystallizing, generating even ideas. Um, and then conversations like this, where, you know, you guys ask me questions about this and I have to, I have to think, I have to formulate answers. Like this is learning to me too. Sharing is learning. So I think it's not like you do need to, there's like inputs and then there's like yeah. the actual like thinking yeah. that you have to do with the inputs and developing your own point of view on them. That's an interesting observation about writing. I actually never, here's a learning moment. You know, I never thought about it that way in terms of like being able, you know, there's the philosophy around the learning, the regurgitating and the teaching, you know, and when you get to that teaching level, I don't think those are the right levels, but you guys are familiar with this, the, the sentences, when you can teach something, it means you actually know it, you know, you're at that expert level, but the idea of writing and being able to put the words on whatever sort of paper you're using helps, not that you're going to share it with the world, but helps the act of thinking through the process behind it. So this has been very, I wasn't sure where we're going to go today. I'm not going to lie. This is, we ended up in a couple of really interesting, you know, um, food for thought nuggets in this episode. So one more, one more final question for you. What's exciting you about the future? Oh man, so many things. I mean, <laughs> uh, so I think there's a lot of stuff to be hopeful for in the future. Like I think in my niche, for example, in social impact, there's definitely some big changes uh, I, th I think are for the better in terms of like how funding is flowing, um, how these kind of organizations can get more support. So I see a lot of hope for organizations in our niche really growing and becoming more influential, becoming more savvy, like leveraging design, leveraging technology in ways that they haven't in the past and funders being willing to fund some of that. So there's some really good stuff there. I mean, I think we're in an incredibly interesting period of civilization in so many ways right now. We've gone through a global pandemic, not that it's like officially over, or maybe it is officially over, but not practically over. Um, we like work culture is being completely re rewritten and, you know, to the, uh, not that managers are super happy about it right now. Um, AI is coming in and shaking up the entire way that work is going to happen. And 
there's just so much change. And I think change is scary, but change is also interesting. And I think my hope is that this shakeup will actually lead to more just and equitable ways of working and not just benefit people who are already in positions of power and wealth. You know, if you look at history, the likelihood of that happening is probably not as high, but I do think there's been some progress there. And I'm hoping that this, especially newer generations who are rightfully fighting for these things can use these opportunities and this time of change to actually create better structures and systems for living. Would be nice, wouldn't it? Well, thank you so much for your time today. This was, this is a great conversation. Um, for those of you listening, watching, consuming, uh, you can find uh, Eric and Design by Cosmic on their website, designbycosmic.com. I said that super awkwardly. Designbycosmic.com, that's your website. So, and then you're on the LinkedIn as well. I know you guys produce a ton of content. Um, so thanks so much. And uh, that's that's it, folks. Thanks if for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation. We did too. This was a lot of, lot of good nuggets. So um, that's it, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, tell somebody about the podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies.bill.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.